we learn about Jesus here. Happy Easter. Yeah, 50 days of Easter. We're not done with Easter. We had it two weeks ago. It was a beautiful celebration. The, the room was packed then. Uh, everybody's like, ah, oh, Easter, I did my thing, and now I'm done. But we're not done. We're going to keep going with Easter 50 days. And so we're going to go into the Bible. And we're going to go backwards from Easter, and we're going to go forwards from Easter, and we're going to go sideways from Easter's. Point is, we're going to do a lot of Bible to talk about Easter. And I want to brag a little bit on my wife, Karen, not only because she went to drop off my kids at prom and get them all ready and their hair done and their makeup done and, and got back here just in time for the service, but so far this year, how many times have you read the Gospels, Karen? I'll put you on the spot. Four times? Three times. She's read through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three times already this year. Plus, we did a sermon series here through the Gospel of Luke since Christmas time. She was in a ladies' Bible study here on Tuesday nights. If you want to be a part of that, it's, what, 6.30 or so, I think, on, what is it? Six on Tuesday nights that also went through the Gospel of Luke. And so I, I tell her that, tell you that, not necessarily to brag on Karen, but she's pretty awesome. But she said to me this week that by doing that, she's gotten more than ever before. It's amazing. The more time we spend in God's Word, the more time we spend studying God's Word, the more that we learn about God. It's interesting that it works that way. And so Refuge is a Bible-loving church, or at least we're trying to get you to be a Bible-loving church. And every week I go online onto that Facebook page that I mentioned, and I post homework. I post the text for what we're going to talk about in here tonight. And so I want to encourage you, do the homework, because it makes what happens here a whole lot more uh, uh, just uh, edifying if we can do that. All right, got a lot of Bible tonight, so let me catch you up to where we're at in the Bible and where we're at in Easter. Um, Jesus has gone to the cross, and he's paid for the sins of the world, and he's been abandoned by everyone, his disciples, his friends, and even his father. And there on the cross, Jesus died. It is finished. He breathes his last breath, and then Jesus is buried. Some wealthy liberal elitist named Joseph comes along, and he buries Jesus in this tomb. But as important as the death of Jesus is to our faith, and it is important, that's where the atonement takes place, it's still just another Friday without the resurrection. And so three days later, as the story goes, a couple of women, we know about the women of the story of the Bible, they go to the tomb and they discover that that tomb is empty. And so they run to tell the disciples. But the disciples can't allow themselves to believe it. And so Peter... This is the Peter we talked about last week, the one who abandoned Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. That Peter runs to the tomb with John. Now, we know from John's gospel that John is a very fast runner because it says he got there before Peter did, and he's sure to tell us about that. They get there, and they see the empty tomb and the, uh, the wrappings of Jesus, and Jesus is not there. And so that brings us to where we're at in Luke chapter 24 now. Uh, Jesus' very first resurrected appearance is to these two travelers traveling home from Jerusalem back to their home in the village of Emmaus. And I preached on that last Easter. That was the Easter sermon I gave during COVID of 2020, and that's online if you want to catch that. I'll give it a B plus or an A minus, so it's worth maybe checking out if you're interested in that. I won't recapitulate the entire story, but here's the dummy version of that story. Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize him as Jesus. And so Jesus takes these two people, and guess what he does with them? He does a Bible study. For seven miles, he does a Bible study with these people who do not recognize him. He says, hey, you two, 
don't look me in the face. That's not how you're going to see who I am. He says, let me show you scripture so that you can see who that I am. And suddenly, as he teaches them scripture and shows how every text of scripture points to him, their eyes are open and, oh, it's Jesus. And as soon as they realize who it is, it says he vanishes. The resurrected Jesus does a lot of weird things, as we're going to find out. Luke chapter 24, then, is where we're at. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 35. It says this, Then those two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them and as they were walking along the road, and how they had recon- hadn't recognized him, or they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And so these two, they go to talk to the disciples. For the disciples, a lot has happened in that three days. They're filled with grief. The rumors are crazy. They're hearing all kinds of stuff. And so they don't know who or what to believe. Kind of like a lot of us do with COVID and all the rumors and craziness around that today. You just don't know who or what to believe. That's how they were. They got a lot of bad information, a lot of rumors. And so they said, we just, we don't believe you. Verse 36 says, as they were telling them about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Then walk through the door. He's just suddenly standing there among them, and he says, peace be with you. Now, peace be with you, the, the Greek, the literal Greek translation of that is, hey, guys, what's up? And so Jesus shows up. Hey, guys, what's up? Verse 37. You are a little slow on the uptake of that. I'll slow down a little bit for you here tonight. <laughs> but the whole group, it says, was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. And so the disciples, here they are, they're hunkered down in this place, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, poof, there's Jesus. But it can't be Jesus because the door's locked, and we didn't unlock the door, the windows are closed, we didn't open the windows, and oh yeah, by the way, he's dead. And Peter, Peter has to be thinking, oh crap, this ghost is back to get me because I denied Jesus three times, and the ghost of Jesus is back to get me. The rest of them, it seems that they still have their logic and reason intact because they know that he died. They don't believe in a resurrection of the dead yet, so they say this must be a ghost. So Jesus says to them in verse 38, he says, Why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? And I want you to know there's no malice in these words of Jesus. He's speaking words of compassion and just very kind in his words. He says, Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it is really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. Now, I was telling Karen this week, I didn't grow up in the Christian church, and so a lot of stuff I learn is new, and maybe I come in here and share stuff with you, and you're like, duh, everybody knows that. Um, I didn't grow up in the church, so I don't know everything. I told Karen this week, I'm like, you know, the, the sign language for Jesus is, is, she's like, yeah, everybody knows that. She, she, her and Emery actually sat at the breakfast table and saying, yes, Jesus loves me, somehow doing that. But, but the sign language for Jesus is the nail prints in his hands. Nail prints, scars from nails. Scars are imperfections. Jesus died. God raised him from death itself. And so why would the glorified Jesus still have these imperfections? Why would the glorified, resurrected Jesus still have defects? Anyone here got a scar on their body? You don't have to raise your hand. You can raise your hand if you want, though, Jane. It's okay. Jane and Justin are the only two people. It's because of CrossFit that you guys have scars on your 
I bet everybody in the room has scars on their hands or their legs or their knees, and I bet everyone in the room could tell me a story that goes along with each of those scars that you have. Robert's not here tonight, but I know he had knee surgery. He's got, you know, the traditional knee surgery scar going up his leg. I know people have had the cancer removal, the skin cancer removals. Those tend to leave scars on the body. Some people have been in car accidents and there's scars left over from those accidents. You mamas in the room that have had C-section, I've heard you tell your kids, you did this to me. (laughs) Do what I say. (laughs) You gave me this scar. Or the stretch marks, you did this to me, that's me talking to my food. I knew you were, you're picking up as we go along tonight. (laughs) A scar is a story that's branded to our bodies. I read that quote somewhere, no idea where, so I can't give them credit, but that's what they said. A scar is a story branded to our bodies. Tell you about a scar I have so I can tell you the story. We go boating a lot. And we were going to the beach, and we are going to go to a beach off of Sanibel. And on your boat, you got these GPS charts, and on the charts, there's a symbol, some rocky-looking things. Didn't know what that symbol meant, um, but the area was labeled the Sanibel Rocks. Okay. And so we anchored up the boat, got it ready. When you anchor a boat, you anchor the front out in the water, then you back up, and then you got to grab another anchor and run it up to the beach real quick so your boat stays parallel and it doesn't float around or whatever. So I grabbed the heavy anchor, and I jump into the Sanibel Rocks slicing open my foot, big gash, bleeding everywhere. That's the story how I branded my foot with a scar. And that scar reminds me that I still see every single day of something painful that happened in my past. That scar reminds me why I needed to be healed in the first place. It was a lesson that I learned. That scar reminded me that my body did what it was supposed to do. It healed the scar just as I would expected it to have done. So what story do the scars of Jesus' hands and feet tell? I think it's the story of Isaiah 53 that we quoted last week. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. In the most basic sense, that's the story of Jesus' scars. It's a reminder of the pain that came at the cross. It's a reminder of why healing was needed in the first place. And most of all, it's a reminder that God did what he was supposed to do. He healed the scars and he healed us in the process. Let me give you a little theology 101 as we kind of build uh, the underneath of this. Will Jesus still have scars when we meet him? When we get to heaven... We meet Jesus, and we shake his hand. I hope we give him a hug. We meet Jesus. Is he still going to have those scars on his hands and his feet? And the Bible doesn't necessarily say. I see a lot of heads shaking. So this is the book of first opinions of Brian Culbertson, but I've got a studied belief that, yeah, I agree. He will still have those scars. And my studied belief comes from Revelation 5. It says, then I saw a lamb. This is John speaking, the lamb of God, looking as if it had been slain. Now, I don't know what looking as if it had been slain actually means, but I think it's an indication that he's still going to have those scars. See, on this side of death, we come in here every couple of weeks and we do communion. We do this meal, and the meal has emblems of wine and bread, and we have those emblems to remember the pain of the cross, to remember the blood that was poured out, to remember that substitutionary sacrifice. I think in eternity, we won't need the wine or the bread because we'll be there eating with the Lamb of God who bears the scars. The scars will be the emblems. Eternity is a long time. 
And so 10,000 years from now, we'll see those scars and we'll still remember the cost of the cross. 10 million years later, we'll still see those scars and we'll still remember the cost of the cross. But maybe you say, but look, Brian, um, we're going to be in heaven. Heaven's supposed to be glory and rainbow and butterflies. And, and why would I want to remember something so terrible that my sin put Jesus on a cross? He had to suffer and die like we can't imagine. Does that mean that we're also going to drag those memories of our sin to heaven with us? Right? I thought, I thought when we got to heaven, we got perfect bodies. Jesus still got scars. Does that mean I'm still going to have my scars? Does that mean I'm still going to have wrinkles when I get to heaven? Or are those going to go away? Am I, am I still going to be bald? Because I sure like to not be bald throughout eternity. <laughs> or will I still have back pain? I know that's one I ask. I certainly don't want to go to heaven and deal with the same back pain that I deal with today. So let's carry that down a little bit further since we're, we're kind of doing some theology here. What about, what about those emotional scars that we have in our lives? Those things that we would rather forget that happened, will we take the memories and the scars and the wounds of those to heaven with us as well? 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul teaching, and he's speaking as if we're plants being planted in a garden, so have that as reference as I read this. But he says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. The body that is sown is in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised. It is resurrected in power. So a disease or a disability, that's something that inhibits the proper function of the body. It's a separation from God's intended design for our body. And so think of it this way. A disease is kind of a foretaste of death, with death being the final incurable disease that we have in our lives. We're watching a PBS documentary right now. Ken Burns got a man crush on him. But uh, Hemingway, uh, great documentary, but Hem Hemingway said all stories, if continued far enough, end in death. It's the incurable disease. But a scar, as compared to diseases and disabilities, is only the memory of an injury. Scar on my knee. I got, I got scars all over my body. I'm really clumsy. But I was opening dog food during the COVID outbreak, and I was using a box cutter, and it was open too far, and I was bent over, and the box cutter went through the dog food bag and my leg at the same time. Didn't want to go to the hospital and catch COVID, so now I've got a giant scar that probably should have been stitched up. But it's a reminder of something that was healed, and it's also a reminder of what an idiot that I am. <laughs> but the function of my knee because of that scar, isn't inhibited in any way. It's simply a reminder of a prior injury that is now healed. The Bible teaches that our resurrected bodies will be completely healed, free from injury, free from disease, free from disability. Revelations 21, 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That means if we've spent this life here on earth tormented by depression or dealing with chronic pain or some incurable genetic disease, all traces of those diseases and disabilities will be gone forever. But the fact that there are scars on the resurrected body of Jesus teaches us that God doesn't see a scar as something that is ugly or that needs to be hidden or done away with. 
scars in eternity are a beautiful demonstration of God's power and glory. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, again, another great book. And if I ever do your funeral, I'll probably use this verse at your funeral because it's one of my absolute favorites from his text. It says, that is what mortals misunderstand. He's talking about the mortals who are still um, down on earth. He says, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Let me use a verse from the Bible now to say the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Imagine for a moment the absolute worst thing you've gone through in your life. And I know that's probably painful, but, but whatever the worst trial or suffering or time of your life, just imagine that for a moment. And imagine that then, the heaviness, the weight of that. Imagine it as a, a rock. Maybe it's a rock this big because you're young and you haven't been through anything that terrible yet. As the older we get, we go through more and more difficult things. And so maybe your rock is actually a giant boulder as big as this stage. Or maybe for some of you, that rock is as big as the Mount Everest. That's a giant rock, heavy weight. Now, as you're thinking of that, imagine a scale. And on one side of the scale, you put that boulder. And man, it's heavy. And that scale, it almost falls off the table. Then imagine on the other side, God putting his weight. We'll envision that as the planet Jupiter <laughs> put on the other side of the scale, which just is a fraction of his weight of glory. You put the two on the scale, there is no comparison. God's glory or our suffering, there is no comparison. God's glory breaks the scales. And so our temporary suffering and pain and trials, it's heavy. But compared to the weight of eternal glory, compared to the weight of eternal happiness and endless beauty, our memories of that suffering from our time on earth, those injuries, it's going to be transformed. Most of us think scars are ugly. And so we try to cover them up or we think, I'm just going to hunker down, I'm going to carry this weight, I'm going to wait for the resurrection, and then God's going to remove them so I can be beautiful. And that might be our physical scars and pains that we deal with, or more than likely, that's going to be the emotional scars that we carry around with us. Now, I read through this story a few times. There's no mention of any scars that Jesus has from the crown of thorns. Doesn't say any, maybe they're there, but there's no mention of them. There's, there's no scars from the floggings. You would think he would have those. They beat his back. He was cut open. There's no mention of those scars either. But the scars from God's greatest triumph in the life of Jesus, those are the scars that remain. Not only that, they've come to be a part of his eternal identity. To erase those scars would be to erase the most beautiful healing God accomplished in and through the life of Jesus. And so those nail prints, they're no longer ugly scars to be hidden. Throughout eternity, they've become the trophies of Jesus. Or to state it another way, those scars have become the king's royal jewels. All of God's love, all of his attributes, all of his character, all of his grace, they're expressed in those scars. 
But what does Satan try to do with our emotional or our physical scars or our past trauma? He tries to target them. He says, your past sin, it's, it's ugly. Your past trauma, it makes you less desirable. It makes you unworthy. It makes you unlovable. What if those scars that t- Satan tells us are ugly, what if our scars become the most beautiful thing about us in heaven? What if the greatest grief in this life is transformed to our very own royal jewels as sons and daughters of the king? What if our past shames, what if our past failures aren't forgotten when we die, but instead it's just another reason for us to sing holy, holy, holy? What does the knowledge of that, what does the thought of that do for your current trials and your current struggles? It doesn't remove the weight completely, so there's no point in pretending that it does because the weight and the burden is still there, but it can give us hope. It can give us perspective. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I want you to see what Paul considers a light momentary affliction. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. he says, five different times and the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but who are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. But he ends this way, who is weak? I do not feel weak. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's a perspective change. Some wounds, though, no doubt, are are incredibly heavy. They're incredibly deep. I thought about them this week, a, a rape victim. That's one of the most awful things I can think of. Somebody who's experienced human trafficking. We partner with an organization into the Jordan where, where women have been trafficked. I can't imagine the depth and the heaviness of that pain. Or maybe somebody losing a child. I can't imagine the weight of that boulder. But what that must mean is what God fills the other side of the scale with for those believers is glorious beyond our infinite comprehension. John chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus says, You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to a wonderful joy. I don't know if you caught the order of that. It says, you will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It's not that our grief will one day end and we'll finally, whew, that's done. I'm glad that's over with, and now we have joy. It says that our grief will be turned to joy. Our grief will be resurrected. It will be transformed into our joy. I have a terrible memory, and sometimes that's a blessing. Sometimes that's a curse. So I've learned to take a lot of notes because I just have a hard time remembering things. And it might just be the amount of activity that I have going on all the time. And that's why if you wonder why I mostly communicate in writing, uh, text and email and all that, it's partly because I'm protecting my time, but partly I want to remember the conversation. If I don't have something in writing about it, I won't remember the conversation that we had. Chances are if you tell me something here on Saturday night, which is the worst night of the week to tell me something, I'm certainly not going to remember that unless you see me write it down. So if you tell me something important, here tonight, make sure that I write it down. Bad memory. But I have to think, when judgment day comes and I'm standing there before the throne of God, that memory all of a sudden is going to get a whole lot better. 
I always imagine it's, it's like watching my life unfold on the movie screen. All the memories come flooding back because I'm there in the presence of God. And so every trauma that I've ever experienced, I'm going to see them. I'm going to relive them right there. Every injury that I've received from other people is going to be on full display on that movie. But you know what else will be there? It's every trauma, every injury that I've given to other people and my sin. Every injury and trauma that I've caused my Savior is going to be on display. But God, the only one who can, will take those wounds that I see on the screen. He'll take my lesions and gashes. He'll take all that weight. It says he'll transform them into glory. So we sang, my mourning will be turned into dancing, my shame into glory, my graves will turn into, I think a garden doesn't even do it justice, what our graves are going to turn into. So Jesus shows them the scars and tells these stories and says they stood there in disbelief. Disbelief isn't that we don't believe what you're saying, Jesus. That, that word really is like, this just sounds too good to be true. But then it says they were filled with joy and wonder. So the disciples are struggling to take this in, but it's when they see those scars that they begin to move from disbelief to joy and to wonder. Now at this meeting where Jesus shows up, there's 10 disciples. We talked about Judas last week, and we know why he's missing from this meeting. There's another disciple missing too, and that's Thomas, or perhaps you know him as his famous name, the Doubting Thomas. The Gospel of John tells his story, so we go to John 20, verse 24. It says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, used to not be nicknamed Doubting Thomas. It was the twin. He's had lots of nicknames. It says, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, unless I put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side, which is an odd thing to say. Verse 26, it says, eight days later, I think Jesus, and just divine patience that he has in waiting that eight days to make sure he shows up when, when Thomas is there. He says, eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked as before, but suddenly Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, which is Greek for what? Hey, guys, what's up? That's right. Y'all are listening. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Verse 28, Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. It's not an OMG. It's not, oh, my God. He's saying, my Lord and my God. He is addressing his king. He's stating his full identity. First time he's ever done this. Thomas has spent three plus years with Jesus. He's heard all the teachings about the kingdom of God. He saw the miracles. He was there at the Last Supper. He's even heard his closest friends tell him that they've seen Jesus and that Jesus is alive. But it's not until he sees the scars does he declare, my Lord and my God. The scars of Jesus told the disciples who Jesus was. The scars told the story of God's redemption. And it caused a doubter to proclaim, my Lord, my God. Our scores, scars, too, are stories of redemption. And so a hurting and broken world 
needs to see our scars. We need to show them our scars so that they know that healing is possible. Never underestimate the evangelical power of sharing your story. For Thomas, seeing the scars triggered an awareness of truth he didn't even know he was looking for. My Lord, maybe, but also my God. He didn't even know he was looking for that. The word for wound in Latin, this is for real, is vulnus. I'm not making this one up. Which is where we get the word. I started tonight talking about the word vulnerable. Being vulnerable literally means that we're sharing our wounds with others. Wounded people make the best healers because they know what it means to be wounded and they know what it means for those wounds to be healed. If you've been here any length of time, you probably know two things for sure about me, that I grew up Mormon and that I love Indiana basketball. I'm going to put those stories together now for you. Um, one of the hardest things I ever did in my life was leaving that religion behind. I mean, I grew up 18, 19 years in that religion, devout. My dad, a leader in the church, my family very devoted. And then I went to college, and then I got out. Then I didn't know what I believed. It was a constant existential crisis, and there was a lot of wrestling. And once I did finally move on past it, it hurt a lot of relationships, especially with my family. And so those emotional scars, that trauma from going through that, it is deep. And sometimes, even though it might look healed, the scars, there's a lot of scar tissue underneath, and it can be a little sensitive to the touch. I told you I'm a big Indiana basketball fan. I mean, big time. I've been watching YouTube videos of basketball games from the 80s all week. That's how much I miss the basketball season. It's pretty lame. I, I get that. But Indiana now is not a very good basketball team. They used to be awesome. They're not very good today. Uh, and so they fired their coach a couple weeks ago, and they started the search for a new coach. And, you know, one of the names that kept coming up in Vegas, they actually put, like, the odds of which coach is going to get hired. And so in the top ten of the coaches that were going to be hired was the BYU coach, who also happened to be a Mormon. And I said, if he gets the job, I quit the team, as if anybody cares that I'm even on the team. <laughs> How deep those trauma is in my life, and it's still healing. But part of the reason I stand here and I do this every week and pull my hair out and some weeks are good, some weeks are bad. But some of the reason I do this is because of those scars. I struggled, man, coming to belief in Jesus. It was a hard journey for me. And so even today when I read Old Testament stories, it's a crisis of faith about half the time when I read those stories. I believed a prophet when I should have been going to God's word for myself. And so that has given me, from that healing, a passion for God's word. That's why you get so much Bible when I teach. It's given me a soft spot for those who struggle with doubts. It's why I despise any glimpse of legalism. It's why I love God's grace and mercy. And so I'm not fully healed, but I hope my scars sometimes helps you with your faith when you come in here. I'm bragging again on my wife. She has scars from depression and anxiety. And sometimes she gets cut again and it has to heal over again. And I believe, other than her amazing intelligence, I believe she's a phenomenal therapist because of her scars. She can relate with people. She can talk about her healing. Healed people, healing others. It's the entire basis of the recovery ministry, right? Healed people, healing others. And that should be the entire model and the basis for the church too, by the way. Jesus in Acts chapter 10, or chapter 1, I'm sorry, uh, says, and you will be my witnesses. That's what he says to us. 
He's telling us to go out and share the gospel. What if to be a witness of Jesus isn't some eloquent gospel sermon or presentation, but it's sharing our stories. That's how we witness to Jesus. We share our wounds, we share our scars, and we witness to the resurrection power of Jesus. There's another group, Compassionate Friends, that's part of this church. They meet here every first Monday of the month, and it's actually still up. I wasn't sure that was going to still be there or not. You see those pictures over there. It's been sitting there all week because I think they had their meeting a couple of weeks ago, and it just hasn't gotten put away for some reason. And as I've been here this week and doing things around the church, I look at that board. Those are all children that have been lost to parents, and they're no longer in their lives. And I have some very dear friends in that group, and so my heart breaks constantly for people who have lost children. I mean, I can't imagine a wound any deeper. That scar tissue from that wound is deep, and I I thought of it this week as probably more like an amputation. Yeah, it's healed over, but there's still a part of their body that is missing. That's what that wound feels like. But they'll attest, those who are in that group and those who have lost children that are in something like that, that some of the greatest healing they've experienced is by being vulnerable and open with their wounds with each other, helping each other heal. Psalm 147 says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up or he bandages their wounds. Jesus didn't heal the brokenhearted by being a good teacher. I mean, Jesus had some great teachings. Love your neighbor, do good to others, treat others the way you want to be treated, but that's not what what saved people. If Jesus had just been a good teacher, if Jesus had just given us a better moral compass, if Jesus was just a nice person with some nice ideas, I'm going to tell you, that wouldn't be giving those parents hope. Hope lies in the reality that God turned the wounds of Good Friday into the scars of Easter. That's the story that the world ought to be hearing from the Christian church. That's the story our scars should be telling the world, that we are recovering addicts, but it's because we placed our hope into a higher power, and so now the wounds have turned to scars. That we are healing from our grief because we know one day God will break the scales of suffering. That God didn't throw away a scarred-up prodigal like me. Instead, he welcomed me home, no questions asked. Be vulnerable with your scars because they don't separate you from Jesus. They actually make you more like Jesus, more than all the good works you could ever do. I'm going to ask the band to come up because I want to close tonight with a song. Again, as I studied this, and the more you read things, the more things kind of stick out, there's no record of Thomas actually ever sticking his finger into those wounds. I mean, that sounds kind of gross and nasty anyway. Jesus says, here's my wounds, see them, touch them. But there's no record of Thomas actually touching them. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but I think seeing them was probably enough. Because when Thomas saw the scars, it was a reminder of pain from the past. It was a reminder of why healing was needed. He saw Jesus. He saw that God did what he promised to do. And he saw love, and he saw grace, and he saw mercy. And when he saw those scars, doubting Thomas became believing Thomas, my Lord, my God. And if you read John's gospel, that is the absolute climax of that gospel. That's what all the commentators say. In fact, all the commentators that you can read will tell you that is probably the climax of all the gospels. This doubting person proclaiming after seeing these scars, my Lord, my God. That profession is also the climax of our lives. Christ will one day judge this world. And I have to think, those scars will still be there. 
and say, look at my hands. Look at these wounds. And for those who have never made that profession, the scars will be the star witness of our guilt. Did you not do this to me? It's important why we share our stories. That's important why we share our stars so they they can have an opportunity to see the scars of Jesus and believe. But if you're here tonight and you believe, it won't be, look at my hands. Did you not do this to me? Depart from me. It'll just be that blessed assurance. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at the scars. Did I not do this for you? Come home. Bring your scars with you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the scars. Most of all in your life, the price that you paid on the cross. But God, we thank you for the scars in our own lives too. We thank you. We see scars. We see the healing. We feel the healing. And so God, we thank you for healing our wounds, for turning them to scars. God, we pray tonight for any open wounds that are out there, that you would be that that surgeon bandaging those wounds, healing those wounds. God, I pray tonight for your peace to be with us here in this room. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Won't you stand?